our time together looking at Galatians by asking us to think about uh, a question. What identifies a Christian as a Christian? Is it the bumper stickers that we have on our car? Is it the WWJD bracelets around our wrists? Is it the the silly T-shirts, uh, which cleverly or not so cleverly, depending on your opinion, you know, make a pun on a popular brand or, or slogan? Or is it by what we don't do? In some Christian circles, what makes a Christian a Christian is that they don't do things like listen to rock and roll or dance or read Harry Potter or watch rated R films or say cuss words or go to casinos or drink wine or smoke cigars or get tattoos or let their men grow their hair out too long or women cut their hair too short or vote Democrat or believe in evolutionary biology or climate change or read any other translation of the Bible than the King James. And of course, the list could go on and on. And if we insist that every Christian ought to fall within these types of constraints, we are creating false boundaries. For some Christians, all of those things might apply to them personally and good for them. But for other Christians, none of those things might apply. Good Christians can have different perspectives and practices rooted in their conscience about each of those points. But the problem is if we insist on other Christians adhering to the same scruples. These would be false boundaries for what makes a Christian a Christian. And often it amounts to a confusion of one's culture or subculture with Christianity. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul was addressing the first false boundary to create a problem for the Christian community. And this was the ethnic boundary marker of circumcision. The key question behind Galatians is this. Do the Gentiles, those who are coming to faith in Israel's Messiah, who are embracing Israel's God, and who are trusting in the revelation from Israel's scriptures, do they need to receive the sign of the covenant and be circumcised like the rest of Israel? Aren't they, by virtue of doing these things, joining the people of Israel? In order to feel the full weight of this issue, we need to recognize that these were very early days in the expansion of the Jesus movement beyond Jewish circles into ever increasingly more diverse Gentile spaces. In fact, Galatians is probably the earliest letter that Paul ever wrote, which would make it the earliest extant Christian document that we have. And at this early stage, there were a lot of cross-cultural issues that Christians frankly hadn't sorted through in advance. It was only in the nitty-gritty reality of everyday life, of coming together and, and being together, that particular pastoral concerns would begin to arise. And in his letters, Paul addressed those things as they emerged. And so the particular concern of Galatians is the circumcision of Gentiles. And it's a concern that many of us will frankly find a bit strange because of our cultural and temporal distance from the text. But fundamentally, Paul was combating a cultural imposition that said that if they want to join us, then they need to become entirely like us. 
But Paul was critical that the idea of making circumcision a requirement is a false boundary. And instead, he draws our attention to what ought to properly characterize God's people. At two different points in the letter, Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. Now, that's interesting. What's all the fuss then if it doesn't matter? Well, Paul's concern is not with circumcision itself, but with the imposition of it and the insistence on it. Because when you make things that don't matter a barrier to entry or a defining characteristic of who's in and who's out, you've misunderstood what the whole thing is about. And what matters instead of circumcision and the uncircumcision binary is faith working through love and new creation. And I want us to take a look at each of these passages where Paul says this. And I want this to uh, provide an entry point into understanding what Paul is doing in Galatians. So turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians 5, verses 5 to 6. This is the first instance where, where Paul says this. In chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, Paul, Paul writes, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. As Paul says here, we await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Does this mean that until God makes all the wrong things right that we just sit around and wait? Is that how we identify Christians or people who just sit on their hands, right? That we just hang tight and trust that, you know, God's got this, right? Notice, though, that's not how it is. Notice the kind of faith that Paul particularly cares about. Faith expressing itself through love. This is the kind of faith that we have as we await righteousness, the underlying Greek word here for expressing actually has to do with working. And what we're talking about is faith working itself out in love. We're talking about an active understanding of faith. Faith is not some passive affirmation about content or propositions. If faith doesn't express itself in love, it's not the kind of faith that ultimately matters. James says that faith without works is dead. And so faith is not merely affirming the right things and talking the talk. It's also about doing the right things and walking the walk. If faith were to put on shoes and walk around in the real world, it would look like love. And we get a concrete example in Galatians of someone whose faith does not manifest itself in consistent faith and love. And that person is actually Peter. Paul records an incident in which he confronts Peter uh, in Antioch. Check out Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. When Cephas, referring to Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you, you, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Here's the thing. Peter's on a journey. He gets it, but he still has these prejudices, and he's far too concerned about what those in Jerusalem might think. And to be clear, the issue here is not what Peter was eating, but with whom Peter was eating. And notice what Paul's response is to this cultural fiasco. It's to talk about justification by faith. And we see that there in verse 16, if you look down at what follows, in that famous verse where where Paul declares that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. But here's the important thing for us to recognize. When Paul turns to talk about justification by faith here, don't forget where he is. He's still in Antioch. He's still at a dinner table, and he's still talking to Peter. His response to Peter includes all of verses 14 to 21. Now, some of your Bibles will put all of those verses in quotation marks, but not most of them. And the significance of recognizing this is that the discussion that Paul has on justification is not some bit of abstract dogma. Rather, it's inherently practical. This discussion is communicating to Peter that since we're all accepted on the same basis by God, on the basis of our trust in Him, why on earth would we essentially divide the community by refusing to eat with some? Peter surely believed that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, but his actions were a denial that God wants Jews and Gentiles to eat together like the single family that they represent. Peter's faith at that moment was not manifesting itself in love. Turn with me now to Galatians 5.14, where we see the importance that Paul places on love in the community. Paul writes, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason why love fulfills the entire law is because if you're loving your neighbor, you're not going to lie to them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to murder them, right? And loving our neighbors as ourselves has looked so different in 2020, hasn't it? It's looked rather odd and sometimes unintuitive. Loving our neighbors has looked like washing our hands thoroughly and often, It's looked like wearing gloves and face masks. It's looked like social distancing and quarantine, a lack of high fives and hugs, watching excessive amounts of Netflix, Disney Plus, and TikTok videos with our kids, learning how to be a homeschool parent for the first time, not letting our kids play with the neighbor kids down the street, giving up from our stockpiles of toilet paper, working from home, canceling conferences and graduations, buying gift cards so that mom and pop shops don't go out of business, 
protesting racial injustice, Venmoing complete strangers going on grocery runs for those who no longer have local grocery stores, and like doing church services online such as we're doing right now. Which means that loving our neighbor in 2020 has been quite stressful and exhausting. And I think we ought to keep in mind that loving our neighbor as ourselves implies an important level of self-care and concern for our own well-being. The great reformer John Calvin was actually critical of this sort of an interpretation of the passage. And he attacked those in his day who held to a similar perspective, namely the professors of Sorbonne in, in Paris. And he called them donkeys for holding to this view. Now, my English translation has a more, much more colorful term than donkey, but we got Fillmore the Fox running around, so I will refrain, right? But the irony of the attack, however we translate Calvin's words, is that in the attack itself, Calvin displays a lack of love for his neighbors in Sarbonne, right? But the real problem here seems to be the assumption that love is a zero-sum game. That if you attend to self-care and self-improvement, you are subtracting from the love that you could be showing to your neighbor. But that is completely false. Love is not a zero-sum game. Parents need to care for themselves in order to love their kids. Pastors need to prioritize their own well-being so that they can serve effectively and avoid burnout. We might even say that self-care is a way of loving others. And in our love for others, Paul tells us here, the law is fulfilled. But it must be noted that this is not some kind of love that we just muster of our own accord. Rather, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at Galatians 5, verse 22, with the full list of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice that love is the first thing mentioned here. The love that fulfills the law in, uh, is produced in us by the Spirit. Now notice too that faithfulness is the seventh thing mentioned, which might be symbolic here. Most English translations have faithfulness, which is not a bad translation, but it might mislead us because it's the same Greek word, pistis, that Paul uses for faith. Thus, the Spirit produces in us the faith which justifies us before God, just as we've seen He produces the love which fulfills the law. And again, what matters for the community, Paul tells us, is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but instead faith working through love. And this is part of the fruit of the Spirit manifested in our lives. Paul repeats this phrase, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, one more time towards the end of the letter. And there he tells us that what counts is new creation. Turn to Galatians 6.15 with me. Paul writes, 
Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So why does Paul say something different here beyond faith working through love? Has Paul radically changed what he's talking about? Well, no, because as as we've seen, faith working through love is only possible through the work of the Spirit, the radical renewal of our lives into signposts of God's coming new creation. And the most emphatic image of this new creation in Galatians comes at the end of chapter 3. Look at verses 26 to 29 with me. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As this passage affirms, being part of God's family and being part of Abraham's family is a matter of faith. It's a matter of being in Christ. And this family is a diverse family, inclusive of various ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, and genders. And it is important to point out that this vision of our unity is not a minimization of difference. It is not a conflation of difference into a bland sameness. This is not an invitation for us to be colorblind, so to speak. The point is that there is a different economy of worth in God's eyes. One's value in God's economy is not determined by being on the right side of these binaries because there is no supreme ethnicity, status, or gender. So, Difference still exists, but it does not undermine our unity in Christ. There are still circumcised and uncircumcised members of the church. Paul isn't concluding from our unity in Christ a uniformity of ethnic practice. The point is that Gentiles are embraced as Gentiles and not by first becoming Jews. In other words, Paul isn't exchanging one type of homogeneity, every male needs to get circumcised, for another kind of homogeneity, no male should be circumcised. That's not what Paul is doing. There are still ethnic and cultural differences, but those differences are not a threat to our unity in Christ, but are precisely what makes our unity so powerful. And notice that the ritual that signifies this and establishes this is not circumcision, but baptism. Through baptism, we put on Christ as if he were the new pair of clothes that early Christians received as they emerged from the baptismal waters, because the evidence of the earliest practice of baptism is that the recipients of baptism would have been naked in order to point to the symbolism of the original creation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And so emerging from the waters now, Christians are part of the new creation. And this is symbolized further in the wording of this passage with male and female. Notice how it goes, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. But that pattern does not hold for the reference to male and female. It says, nor is there male and female. 
The wording here is the same wording as the Greek translation of Genesis 1, verse 27. And in Genesis 1, male and female refers to the original creation of humanity. The point of the allusion here in Galatians then is that marriage is not a demarcation of one's worth or value in the new creation, which if you think about the fixation of the letter on the circumcision of male children, that's a really big deal. And this is also good news for women in an ancient society in which one's value was inherently bound up with who your husband was. So then notice how baptism is a universal ritual applicable to all, both male and female, over against circumcision, which was androcentric and indeed phallocentric. All of God's people can participate in the ritual of baptism. Again, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. And to insist otherwise is to create a false boundary. Instead, Christians are to be identified by their faith, working through love, as manifestations of the new creation. And so in our context today, we might not be recommending observance of the Mosaic law as an entrance requirement into the faith, but how often do we add false boundary markers to the faith in other ways? Certainly, there are important beliefs and practices that mark us out, that identify us, that demonstrate that we are Christians. But sometimes what we think is Christian might merely be American or middle class or suburban or white. And if we truly believe that God is a missional God who is bringing together a diverse people of every possible background into a single family united in Christ, then we need to be agents of racial justice. If that is God's work in the world, then we need to be on board with that mission and join in with what God's doing as people who express our faith in concrete acts of love that function like signposts to the new creation for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we, we pray for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. We need your spirit here in 2020. Lord, we pray that you would make us agents of racial justice, that we would be people who display our faith in concrete acts of, of love, that we would be people who embrace the whole people of God, and that as a single family together, that we would point forward to that day when people from every nation and tribe and tongue would worship the Lamb in a world without end. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.